the last podcast, we talked about the struggle. And needless to say, it was a struggle. I I don't know that it came across that way to listeners, but after that podcast, we went to go ahead and move on, and we're listening to it over again at the end. Um, and we came upon, upon this issue that was, it sounded like I was saying the struggle was equal to salvation, that that was a salvation moment. And that led us into a lot of questions and struggles, and we ended up talking for about three hours about this. And I think at the end of it, we came to this moment of realizing that the way that I'm talking about this thing and the way that my grandfather who was with us and Paul was talking about this thing are a very different way of talking, um, or at least that we have different views. Um, So I'm going to kind of get into that here now, which is the idea that I was struggling with was this idea of testimony theology. Is how I've been phrasing it for myself. Um, and what I mean by that is that the testimony is the paramount of the Christian faith. Testimony is, I was bad, I had an experience with Jesus, then I was good. Good meaning I'm supposed to be all of these things at this point, almost like a religious good. Uh, I'm good enough now that I need to do all of these correct things. I've had this conversation with a lot of people since then because I've been struggling through it myself, Um, maybe very similar to Jacob's struggle. And as I've had this conversation, I've been dismissed by more adults than I can possibly count, mostly. I feel that as I've had this conversation, adults have heard me and said, no, 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 like, you're wrong, testimonies are correct, whatever. And as I've spoken to kids my age and to youth, um, I lead and work with quite a few different Um, youth in my area and one specific time with a group of about 10 ninth to 10th grade girls I was speaking to them about this idea and some of the stuff that I was struggling with even as a leader um I don't know if you're supposed to do that but I was and they all agreed with the same struggle that I had which was this idea that a testimony is faith testimony is Jesus the idea that you're bad and then you're supposed to be good and this supposed to be good as far as I've kind of digested it, leads to two separate paths. I call it the bad kid, good kid path. So you are bad, you have an experience with Jesus, and you say yes to him, and then you choose the bad kid or the good kid path, which is you hear, Jesus saves me, I'm fine. You're supposed to mess up at this point. Adults say all the time, like, it's fine, you're going to mess up after you're good now, but you're going to mess up and there's going to be struggle. And what they're trying to talk about is sanctification, discipleship. But what the bad kid hears, this has been me, um, is I'm good now and I'm going to keep messing up and Jesus is going to keep forgiving me. So I will just go ahead and do the bad thing because I'm good now. So it's fine. The good kid, I've also been this kid. I just got so mad with it that I became a bad kid. Um, The good kid mentality from this point on is, okay, so I was bad, then I found Jesus, now I'm supposed to be good. So what does that good look like? I'm supposed to go to church. I'm supposed to read my Bible. I'm supposed to be loving. I'm supposed to be caring. All these supposed tos. And they know, I knew that I wasn't good, like I was supposed to be. But I faked it because I felt like that's what everyone else around me was doing. It's like everyone else is putting on this good face as well. And clearly, because I can't manage to do this on my own, it must be a face for all of them. So I'm just going to join the Christian church mask, 
the Christian church masquerade. And I'm going to stand up when I'm supposed to stand up and raise my hands when I'm supposed to raise my hands. And then I'm going to feel incredibly guilty because I can't read my Bible or pray like I'm supposed to. And I don't have like enough scriptures in my Bible highlighted. And it becomes this whole competition of who can be more spiritual. Um, and you're trying your best to be the good that you're supposed to be. And then you finally hit this point of existential crisis, as is actually very common for people my age and younger of, wait, what is the whole point? There is no purpose in this. There's no life in this. So I'm done. Jesus saved me and I know that. So I'm just going to go to bad kid theology because it works a lot better. It's quite a bit easier to just go like drink and party and do whatever I want and know that like I'm going to heaven. So it's fine. It's, it's kind of, it's easier than like trying so hard to be good. So I'll just do that, which leads to more suffering and existential crises because once you've found God, sin doesn't feel so good anymore. And so it just gets real messy. So Paul, this is kind of what I've come to from our conversations as far as that's the place and the mentality and the theology that I feel in some ways that I've been raised in, maybe inadvertently. Most adults get really mad at me when I say that I was raised in that theology because they were the ones that raised me and they don't agree that I was raised that way. Um, but I think that's what I was inadvertently taught. And I'm wondering what you have to say about it. <laughs> oh, that's quite simple, huh? What a, what <laughs> Easy a, answer. Yeah, sure. really. You really left nothing much to talk about. So let me ask you a question. Then. Yeah, of course. Are you happy where you are in Jesus? Mostly. And how do you describe yourself now? Without any previous teaching, how would you make up your brand new Michaela? At this point in time? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that as of now, brand new Michaela is mostly good, mostly resting in Christ, mostly peaceful, mostly doing what's right, but also greatly not okay, greatly still a sinner. Um, and greatly still quite confused about what this whole thing is supposed to look like. Okay. So where do we go from here? Good question. I think that the Bible has a lot to say about this. And I agree with you. There's a lot that has not been said. And so we rest on certain portions of scripture to give us credence to what we believe of ourselves. Everyone struggles with the same thing as a human being, you know, because we are very complex beings. And I think when we try to look for this experience-centered um, testimony theology that you're talking about, we have a problem when we go into the Old Testament to find um, enough illustration to say, oh, this is very defining point for certain individuals in the Old Testament, including Jacob. Now, last time we spoke, we spoke about his wrestling match, which is a really important part of the scripture because Jacob wrestles with the God of the universe and God leaves him with this blessing that he was longing for. So he knew inside of him there was something missing. That's a critical element of the story. There was something missing in his humanity that he knew was offered to him because God gave the promise to his grandfather Abraham and then to Isaac that you would be blessed and through you all the families of the earth would be blessed. So there was some component that was going to be human in nature but come from God. So it was going to be inserted from the God of the universe into the 
being of a human, Adam, Abraham first, then Isaac, but then he promised it that it was going to come through Jacob. The blessing was going to come through Jacob. We know this at the point where we talked about last week, that God had said it was going to come through Jacob, not Esau. But Jacob didn't have it. At this point in the story last week when he wrestles with God, that was his whole point. God was saying, hey, let's just quit, Jacob. We've been wrestling all the way into the break of day. Let's stop now. And he said, not until you bless me. So he wanted it so much. Is that what made him save, that he wanted it so much, that he struggled so hard, that he lasted through the night? Is that a salvation story? I don't think that's really what is the, the real primary purpose of that story. Whether he got saved that night or not is really not clear if that was his moment in time. So what I want to say to you and to your generation is that there doesn't have to be a moment in time that defines when you become a Christian, when you become saved, when you become born again. I that, think that's a really helpful thing that we need to hear almost a couple of times, because a lot of kids of my age that are even interested in a podcast like this are kids that have grown up in the church. I would like to be blunt and say most kids who haven't grown up in the church probably won't listen to this and also haven't stepped foot in a church probably ever. Mm -hmm. But kids who have are the ones that would be interested and the ones who are struggling with this. And so you're talking, at least with my age and below, to a generation of kids who probably don't have a moment really because they accepted Christ when they were five. Mm -hmm. accepted Christ. Right. If we're talking about that salvation moment that's supposed to be this big testimony, that happened when they were five. And they've also probably started wondering why the heck things weren't different. And then if they were a good kid, they probably didn't do anything quite wrong through high school. But if they were a bad kid, you know, air quotes on mm -hmm. both of these, right. they probably ran off and did all this bad stuff. And so now they feel like they maybe have a secondary testimony. And what does that mean? There's a lot of things that start coming into mm -hmm. issue when you are raised in a church and you're like, I wasn't 30 on the floor of my own house when I had kids and decided to find Christ. I've grown up in this. So what do you mean a testimony that is when I was saved? Like, I don't have that. Am I wrong? Was I not saved? What's going on? This whole schizophrenic thing you've kind of mentioned a couple of times, not on the podcast, but to me personally, mm -hmm. of the questions start getting schizophrenic. It's like, what does this mean? Uh, am I saved? Is everything okay? Start right. twitching a little bit. <laughs> so... I mean, these are really valid questions. I, I would say that, number one, the Old Testament is not going to teach us moments of salvation. So if we're looking for that in characters in the Old Testament, we won't find it that way. It might seem that way and sometimes, but not. But the second thing, but this is even actually the primary thing, is that Jesus came to save sinners, right? That's clear. Um, this is the Bible from the New Testament on, it becomes very clear, but Jesus is introducing concepts that were confusing to them. Now, remember the first time he said anything about being born again was to Nicodemus, who was a teacher of Israel. He was a part of a member of the Sanhedrin. He was supposed to know things that most people didn't because he was trained in the, not only Jewish thought, but biblical thought. So he had the, the background of the Commonwealth of Israel, but also this strong biblical teaching that his whole life was centered around. And when Jesus told him that you must be born from above, um, you must be born of the Spirit, because that 
which is of the spirit, is spiritual in nature, so it's born of the spirit, and that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So he was talking about a human being being two different natures right away. Not two different natures, but two different parts. So without going to details at this point, Jesus does say to him that you must be born again. And he says that as a general, wide open conversation to all of humanity from that point on. Nicodemus had trouble understanding it because it was never that black and white before. And so to think in terms of black and white is a mistake for us. So to say, <coughs> to say that a person has to have an experience in order to be saved is not valid. It's not biblical. There are people that have an experience that is identifiable in time, and there are others that don't. So like you're talking about this five-year-old who had this love affair with God from that age and doesn't remember it ever stopping, always loving and respecting, wanting to please God because there was something inside of her or him that was geared in that direction is a good, um, to me, that would be a factor in saying, well, this child has come to faith at an early age. When, you know, we don't know for sure, but certainly has lived underneath this banner of relationship um, from that point in time or from the earliest we could ever tell. Jacob, he had an experience with God. He got as close, and this is really, I think, much more the conversation, is that Jacob got as close to God as he can get because God began the match with Jacob. God's the one that started the wrestling match. And just think of wrestling. It's an embrace. You can't get closer to another person than in a wrestling match. It's just your sweat is his sweat, etc. It's very messy human experience between two people, but it's intimate. And so in order for a relationship with God to start, it has to be relational. And so if we're going to talk about salvation, the experience is secondary to the relationship the relationship that we witness as a result of some point in time. So you would then say, with the whole Nicodemus example, that God saying you have to be rebirthed in spirit is also being born again into that spiritual relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Yes. So then that kid who was been raised in the church, you know, had that relationship start basically when they were little, and has always lived in that, even though they don't have this big moment, are obviously clearly saved or right okay and they could have the confidence i think that's what's missing is the confidence because as far as i can see in my generation kids who have always had christ eventually have to get to this part this point of wait this has been happening since the beginning and, but every single time I go to church or youth group or a big conference, they're telling me to rededicate my life or get saved again. Mm -hmm. And that's all I hear mm -hmm. is get saved again, get saved again, or, mm. you know, rededicate or save, get saved or whatever. And all these kids are like, but what comes next? And there's no teaching of what comes next as far as I've seen in, mm -hmm. my, in my limited experience. There's not much teaching for these kids about what comes next. So they eventually start to question if it ever happened. I started to question if it ever happened. And I remember specifically throughout my years in high school, crying, literally, because I wanted God so badly, but I had no clue how to get to him. 
And I, people say, you know, read your Bible, pray. And I'd say, but they're just empty words on a page. Like I try, I read, I do whatever I can. I talk to him if I can, but there's, there's nothing there. There's no, there's no breakthrough. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And all I'm hearing from church people is, well, you're saved. It's fine. Hmm. You're good. Right. Or get saved and then you'll be better. Right. Well, the Bible makes it very clear that there's none righteous but God. There's none good but God. And that's, those are conversations that the prophets had. Those are the conversations that the New Testament records and repeats. There is none good but God. So if we are trying to say that I am good, and, you know, we have the expression, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. You want a cup of coffee? No, I'm good. I'm like, I didn't ask you if you're good. I want to ask you if you have, want a cup of coffee. But you brought in the conversation that you're good. So we have this very casual conversation about what good means. But a very interesting thing happened in, to Jesus when he was met by this rich young ruler who had everything going for him. The disciples were like, wow, this dude is coming. He wants to be part of our team. You know, this is amazing. He's got everything in life. Welcome him, Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and he said, hey, uh, you know, we kind of um, recognize there's something very special about you, good teacher. Um, what must I do to please God? You know, what, are, what, what, what good thing do I have to do? And he goes, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Now, was Jesus saying that he wasn't good? Or was he saying that he was God? Because there's none good but God. He never said, I'm not, I'm not good. But he did say that there's none good but God. So in essence, he is literally saying that, hey, I'm God. Well, if I'm good, I'm God. Exactly. So we, that's in math, right? If, mm-hmm. if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So we learned if, that, right? In algebra. If you call me good, then you're calling me God. Exactly. And there's no one else but God that's good. So what do you mean when you say good? Cause, right. Yeah. But, they, but everyone thought of him as being good. But at the same time, he went away sad. So why, how, why would a good man go away sad? Because Jesus kind of put into the test, you know, um, have you really done all the things that Moses commanded you, like you said you have since you're, since you're a kid? So he was saying that I'm good. I've always been in the church, quote unquote, air quote, as you say. Yeah. Um, so, um, so he was one of those kids thinking that he was good, but still he came to Jesus because he knew that there was something missing inside of him. And this is the point that we're trying to make, is that when you recognize, no one has to tell somebody that they're born again. So there's something inside of you that, that is qualifying you in a relationship with the God of the universe that you know is your own, that no one could take from. But because we're products of our environment, we're products of our teaching, our growing up experience, many, many things, we're complex, our lives are very complex, then it's easy to get confused along the way. Being a Christian also has the added element of you have an enemy that the world does not have, and that's Satan, the serpent. He shows up in the beginning of the story. We can never dismiss him from our story because he was given a place from the beginning because of the fall of man to be able to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, which is Eve. So it's hard not to go back to the beginning, but in order to understand the story properly, we do have to go back to the beginning because we're all products of what happened in the beginning. So when God, um, when, when they didn't do what they were supposed to do was one thing. There was only one do not do, 
which was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So because they took a bite of that fruit, both of them, they were both there together, they took a bite of that, then they the, the, the cause of their consequence was their disobedience. They didn't choose their consequence because God didn't really delineate it. He just said, you will die. In, in dying, you will die. It literally means that if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die. Now, it sounds like they were going to fall down dead, but that's not what the word means. It means that in dying, you will die. So they didn't die. They didn't physically die. So what part of them died? Well, the part of them died is their spiritual nature. It didn't die spiritually. They didn't not have a spirit anymore because the body without a spirit is dead. The body's dead. But their spirit began to die. Spiritually, the New Testament calls it, you're spiritually dead. So the spirit cannot function anymore in communication with God like it once did. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. Remember that God made all the creatures of the world, fish, birds, everything. But there's only one of his created um, genius that was breathed into, and that was Adam and from Adam, Eve. So Eve was within Adam. God breathed into Adam and gave life to them. It was spiritual life. That's what made the difference between Adam and Eve and the animal world. They had a spirit. The animals have a soul, but not a spirit. My, when I look in my dog's eyes, I'm looking deep into my dog, but I'm not looking into a spirit. When I look into your eyes, I see there's something spiritual there that my dog does not have. Now, people get upset with that, but I love dogs, but he still doesn't have a spirit. <laughs> you know, he has a sweet soul and sometimes not that sweet but he does not have a spirit. So um, when Jesus, when God delineated man from the beast, it's because he breathed into him. That's what made the difference. When we understand Hebrew, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. The same word means wind. So when we start to, to listen to the voice of Jesus with Nicodemus, we hear him talking spiritual words when he uses the word wind and spirit. Same word. So man has the spirit, but the spirit becomes a problem because when he said that you shall surely die, it's the spirit that began to die. Adam and Eve knew it instantly. They felt like, oh my God, what happened to us? We're missing something. We're naked. Why did they not know they were naked before? Because God was their covering. It was a spiritual relationship they had with God that was a covering. They never felt naked. All of a sudden, they felt naked and ashamed because they no longer had a covering. Their spirit was exposed to things it never was exposed to before, and it was beginning to fall apart for them. And so we all fall into that same category. There was a problem that began in the garden that we all are experiencing the consequences from. Go ahead. I was going to say, this all feels fairly basic to me. I'm like, yeah, yeah, got it. Spiritual death, da-da-da-da-da. Like, I don't know. I... It makes, it all has made sense to me until now. And I'm sure there's a certain extent where people don't feel like that makes sense. I think what doesn't make sense to me is, okay, I'm supposed to have this point where I get spiritual life. I'm supposed to be born again. Like Jesus said to Nicodemus, that's supposed to happen. Then what? Okay. Because that's where everyone's see, stuck. This is why everyone's confused though, because you want, look, let's get over the Old Testament stuff. It's full of stories. No, let's I'm jump. not trying to say get over it or jump ahead. What I'm trying to say is that's what I, that's all I've ever been told. Oh, I know. My whole life, all I've been told is there's this big long story that ends with you getting saved and being born again. 
ta-da. Right. But see, this, but now is, what? We, this, is, this is really the problem. We take a javelin and we throw it as far as we can over the Old Testament into the New Testament and with both feet on the ground like a, like a, a high jumper, um, a pole vaulter would be better. And, you know, we just jump into the New Testament. Jesus is just born in the manger. Let's go for it. You know, and now it starts. But if we miss we miss the whole st- story that builds up to this, which is a story of struggle. It's a con- it's a consistent story of human struggle. And so to think that that struggle ends in the New Testament, this is what unfortunately has been portrayed in churches too often is that, hey, you're good to go now. You came to the altar. Didn't you come to the altar? I saw you here like six months ago, weren't you? You're born again. Go for it. You know, you're good to go. But that's, that's, that's like saying, cast out the entire story of the Old Testament and say it's, it's invalid, it's irrelevant, because now we have Jesus and we're good to go. But then we have this, it's like if we saw spiritually, when we came to church, we'd see all these people coming in in wheelchairs and crutches and walkers, and the, spiritually, that's what they look like in God's eyes. They're limp, they're laming, and you know they can't hear and they can't see, because we don't have the same discipleship experience, which you talked about briefly, that the disciples, the original, the first time we hear about disciples is with Jesus' disciples. And they had an experience with him. What was that all about? And so if if we see, did Jesus say, okay, you're born again, next, you're born again, next, you're born again, you're born again, and just go through all of Israel. Everyone just comes to the altar. They hear this, this Middle Eastern music behind them, and um, they get saved. And now, you know, fill out this card. We'll contact you sometime in the future. And Clearly not, but that is often what it feels like the church has presented me with. But, Pre- that's that's and, the church that I've been given. Okay, so now here's the real thing for you and your generation is uh, let's skip the blame game anymore because, yeah, they, that is what I was handed. So I got a, a bad... I got a bad package of information. It's not all bad, but some of it is really has caused me confusion. So now the responsibility is on your side. This is what we really want to convey. So yeah, you've been given some, a mixed bag of understanding of what this life is as a believer. But I have to go back to the beginning. When Adam and Eve, we're going to say that they, well, they're the first human beings but we're also going to say they're the first disciples because now they have to learn a new way of living in the struggle. They didn't have the struggle before. So this is where we all identify with the first Adam and the first Eve. They began the struggle. And God introduces the struggle with Adam. He says, okay, Adam, you're going to struggle for ma- with making a living. It's going to be tough for you. These roses that you used to give Eve all the time, now they're going to have thorns on it. When you pick a rose, it's going to make you bleed, Adam. When you, when you, make, when you pull garden uh, vegetables out of your garden, you're going to fight mosquitoes that bite and weeds that are overgrown, things like that you never had before. It's going to be a struggle for you, Adam. Eve, you're going to have a struggle giving birth. What's birth? I never had a baby before. What's that all about? You're going to see it's going to be a struggle. It wasn't intended to be, but it will be. And so she starts learning things about the struggle when she first has her first child. But he says one other thing when he says to the serpent that you are cursed. He doesn't curse Adam. He doesn't curse Eve. He curses the ground because of their sake, and he curses the serpent. To the serpent, he says, you are going to have access to the heel of the woman, the seed of the woman, not to the woman herself, the seed, her descendants. 
You're going to have access to, what are you going to have access? You're going to be able to bruise that heel. But the seed of the, of the woman is going to crush your head. So there's a huge conflict that is introduced to the, in the garden between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, without knowing all the details of that, we do know that history is going to be marked by this conflict. The serpent will be able to prove the seed of the woman, who we don't know who that is yet, but the, we know it means Zerah is the Hebrew word. It means descendant or offspring. So we know that her descendants at some point are going to be bruised by the serpent. He's going to have that access. What does a heel represent? Well, it's the back of your foot. And so it represents a person walking, but every now and then something is going to grab that heel and make it hard to walk. So the walk is going to be painful at times. So that's talking about a struggle. Right away, we're introduced to the struggle of humanity. All of humanity, well, so far it is. It's the seed of Eve. She's the only woman. But yet there's no children yet, but we can expect these things. Expect the struggle of the man as separate from the struggle of the woman. And then separately altogether, a curse that allows the serpent to mess with the walk of those that will come after. Right. And so we don't know who those are yet, but as the story goes on, we see the struggle immediately in the next episode, which is two brothers, both descendants of Eve and Cain and Abel. One kills the other, and the, and the one who does the, the murderer, uh, Cain, it goes into exile, and Eve is left with no sons. And the next story we see that shows up, the major episode, is that she's pregnant again, and she's going to give birth to a boy. She realizes he's a boy, and she names him Seth. Which me, and she says, perhaps he is the appointed one, because it wasn't Cain or Abel. Abel died, and it wasn't Cain. But God said I would have an offspring, a child would come from me, that would crush the head of the serpent. And he has done so much damage so far, I'm ready for my son to crush his head. And I'm going to name him Seth, because Seth means appointed. He's appointed to do it. Well, it wasn't Seth. We don't see the enemy crushed. But we do follow from that point on all of the offspring of Seth. It just goes from Seth on. Well, it gets almost humorous at this point when you're reading the Bible, if you kind of have any context. If you're reading at that point and she's like, maybe this is the one. And you're like, haha, sweetie, do you see how big this book is? He's not the one. It's not him. And then we move on time after time after time from Noah to... Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and every single time I mean as a reader of the Bible if you didn't know what was happening further on you were probably even kind of saying is this the one that's finally going to end this struggle because it's clearly throughout the whole Old Testament a struggle we mm -hmm. could go from person to person to person to person and see that struggle you're right we can and as we travel through the Old Testament that's what we're seeing a huge amount of struggle um, yeah, like you mentioned in Noah's day, by that time, the hearts of men were wicked continuously. So God had to start over. So the struggle is there. But is the struggle from man to man, from woman to woman, from man to woman, woman to man? It's a, it's a human struggle in a degree, but it's a spiritual rooted struggle. Because the serpent, we learn later, is a spirit. He's an angel. He's an, a dar an angel that fell, just like Adam fell. And he's getting back at God for God casting him out of heaven. And this is his, his vision is to get to God through his creation. The creation that he said was good 
incidentally, right from the beginning, but it didn't stay good. So we do have a, a big issue about what good means, but it's a spiritual conversation that we have to have in order to understand what it is in the very foundation of it, the root of good. So we see that man and God can have a relationship. We see that happening with Enoch. He walked with God. And, and um, we see that the serpent is out to create a havoc in the world through the heart of man to make it wicked. And he's successful at it. So he's, not, he's, he's got limited capabilities, but he does have capabilities. And we could discuss that in another point, I'm sure we will, but I think it's very important to, to keep in mind right from the beginning what this discipleship thing we're calling about, it has to maintain its spiritual level in order for it to be understood in its fullest context. Because the spirit of man is the problem. Because remember, he said, you won't die immediately. Adam lived till he's like 900 something. So obviously that God did not mean he'd have instant, he wouldn't have a heart attack and die. But in dying, you shall die is what it says. So his spirit is dying. As his spirit is, is dying, his body is dying. There was no death before that. Death came after sin. So Adam starting to die, the dying process, the process of dying is the same thing that we experience at a much more limited level in our time than Adam did. What do you mean by limited? We don't have as much time. Uh, that makes sense. Um, one thing that or thought that's coming to me out of all of this is first off, it feels like this in no way answers my questions. And I feel like that's how God works anyway. Oftentimes the question that you have, the answer is a lot longer, a lot more complex and a lot less of a seeming answer than it. It doesn't seem like the answer as you're listening. And I feel like that's what this is. I'm like, this isn't the answer. That's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to say, what next? And you're saying you have to understand that you're spiritually broken first. You have to get to that point. And as you're speaking and talking about all of these characters in the Bible, I'm immediately like, but jump to me, jump to Jesus. What do you mean? Like, like this part doesn't matter as much, which is what you were saying earlier, that we just keep getting taught to kind of throw the spear over the Old Testament and get to the New Testament. Um, but I keep coming to this thought of, wait, you mean these people post Adam and Eve had spiritual life with God. And in my context of church right now, I'm like, wait, you mean they're going to heaven? They didn't have Jesus. How does that work? How could, how could Noah go to heaven? How could Enoch go to heaven? I mean, it says that Enoch didn't die, but he went to heaven, but he didn't have Jesus. Okay. David, he's, you know, this good King or, you know, both horrible and good, but um, of course, we're not. None of us are good. But the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. And I'm like, but he doesn't have Jesus. Could he have gone to heaven? And it's this continual concept that I think is quite flawed of the end goal being heaven. Yeah. And so, you know, when Jesus was asked a question, he rarely answered it. Mm -hmm. Very rarely answered it. He answered it with a question. And there's reason for that. And I think it's a really good way. It's, it's his method of discipling. Okay. So you want answers. You want answers that are going to satisfy you. You want to drive by Jesus. You want a, um, a 2% Jesus, you know, milk used to be measured in percentages. We don't do that much anymore. 
So there's like 4% was like really close to being milk, which isn't much milk at all. It's only 4% cream. And 2% became the acceptable one. But skim milk was the one that if you were, you know, if you if you just wanted a, like a little dab of milk to look like milk, but it really didn't taste like milk. So you're talking about a 2% Jesus, basically, is what you're looking for. Oh, I'm wanting a social media Jesus, I think. Okay. I read so. one of his posts. I'm like, oh, cool. He's doing pretty good. Just scroll right past. Yeah, right. You drive by Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we've come come to the age of that, but it's unacceptable to God. So we can't expect to get the full Jesus when we have a drive-by mentality. Mm -hmm. I'm wanting to sit with you for half an hour and to have my questions and all the questions of those who are listening and probably as frustrated as me or more frustrated by how frustrated I am um, to just have the answer that, there's, that we're all going to have to just chill us all out. Well, I think that it has to be rooted in this fact that either you're made spiritually new or you're not yet spiritually new. So there's two different kind of beings in this world. Not so much Christian and non-Christian, but have you been made spiritually alive? Because in Adam, we are spiritually dead. If you're made spiritually alive, that means you have a capability of having this relationship with God that is e enormous, that is endless, ceaseless. There's no limitations to it. So it's the experience that we talked about initially about being born again. The legitimacy of that comes from the spiritual life that proceeds from that experience. And the same thing with the, the young child. Like I have grand, a granddaughter, I'll say specifically, that is, I know that I have fellowship with her since she's like three years old. Fellowship, I mean. Worshiping together since she's three. Now, I can't say that with all of my grandchildren, but I had that same kind of fellowship um, with her, which is very unique. Now, I'm not saying that my other grandchildren are not born again, but it just, it just with her specifically, it was something very unique at a very early age that was identifiable that this girl's in touch with God. I want to have fellowship with her. She's not just cute, you know. Mm -hmm. I just want to be around her because she has this love for God that is sincere and real. So could, will she ever be able to say, oh, I got saved when I was, you know, I was on the bed, you know, I was, I was in the bathroom one day and I just, I was two and a half years old, you know, and, and uh, I just had this experience, you know, probably not. But that doesn't make her any less a child of God. Um, so, and, I, and I've, now she's eight years old and I still see this life in her mm -hmm. and I expect to see it on into eternity. But that doesn't mean she doesn't struggle. See, this is an interesting thing. I see now the struggles because the human side and the enemy, which we can never forget about, is out to bruise the heel. What does the heel mean? It signifies your walk. Remember Jacob? God touched his hip. And what happened to Jacob? It says that he never walked the same again. He walked with a limp. So literally, he didn't walk the same again. Um, when, we're, when we're walking as a human being, we're walking as fallen creatures. We always fall. We, not every day, not every moment. We don't limp through life in a sense. But we have fallen um, capacity because of that nature. But when Jesus touches us, we don't walk the same anymore. We don't walk with this, this spiritual limp anymore. We, we walk, we take a different step. We have a high step. Our chin is up from now on. There's a difference in the way we live and, and move because of him. Not because we're good. It's because of him and he is good. So I think, so 
to get back to to the story, mm-hmm. it's rather than pole vaulting, you know, into the cradle where Jesus was born, and see how cute he was, and say, I want to be cute like Jesus. You know, he was so sweet and every kind, and never did anything wrong. Um, so I want to be like him, and I want him to always be my friend. You know, and go to heaven together, and and then and then let's go on. We got we'll settle that. We'll go on living and doing whatever it, that takes to be as good as I can be and be settled in that way. And to me, I think what you're saying isn't the thing that anyone actually wants. No, that's the problem. Okay, I think we keep getting told that that's what we want, but it's wrong. That's not what I want. I don't want an easy life. I don't want everything to be perfect. I'm just told that's how it's supposed to be. And why is it not? And I think what you said answered that fairly well, which was there's a difference between spiritual life and spiritual death. And you who are spiritually alive and you who are spiritually dead. But being spiritually alive means generally a struggle or that there will be struggles. There always are struggles in life. But specifically a struggle that makes you not walk the same again. That you won't walk the same. Mm -hmm. And you will continue to experience struggle. As in the struggle doesn't ever quite end is at least the way that I'm hearing it. But there is a difference in the way that you walk. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. So let me make something else a little bit more clear. So if we are a spirit being, we got this down, right? Mm -hmm. Um, All humanity, because we proceed from Adam. So we have this spirit God has given to us. um, And that spirit needs redemption, right? Because it's, it's spiritually dark. And that's why we see good and evil, you know, but where does it come that some people seem to be wicked or badder than other people and some people just seem to be they should be good enough to go to heaven it should just because of their behavior i mean we measure by the way we see people so the 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 confusion i think takes on maybe a new level of education something we need to learn about this struggle because how do we go from the spirit to the natural? Because we all live in the natural, right? We live in this world. We see each other, touch each other. So this is the world we live in. We don't see the spirit. The things that are spiritual are not seen. And the Bible makes that very clear. It says that. So what is man then? If he's, if he's a spirit and he's natural, how does one, the natural part, affected by the spiritual part? Well, there's one other element of the human nature that needs to be discussed and that is the soul so the new testament says that we're to be sanctified body soul and spirit so there's three parts to us some would say there's only two i would disagree i think it's really important what the bible says about us and stick to it it says that we are body soul and spirit so then we have to say okay well what is this soul thing about then if it's different than the spirit well, the soul and the spirit are very close in nature. The body's clearly different. It's, it's our mechanism. You know, we take, our, we take away the heart of the brain and the body doesn't function. It looks the same momentarily, but it's, it's soon to decay completely. So what then is the function of this third piece of, of um, information that you're telling me this third mechanism if you will what does it do what is the soul's function well um the soul like the spirit is capable of thinking it's capable of feeling 
and it's capable of making decisions. So within our soul is what we would call heart and soul. You know, we, we kind of separate the two, but really the heart, the, the heart of, of the man is within the soul. So we are capable of feeling and thinking and making decisions with our soul. So if our spirit, if we are made of spirit, soul, and body, then the body is the, is the part that's really the least important because it fades and, and dies. The soul of man, we're told later on, returns to God. It's the spirit that becomes made alive when we're born again. So the spirit is what God is, is tending to. Um, when he speaks to this Nicodemus at night, he said, you must be born of the spirit. And why is that? Because your spirit needs to come alive in order for you to have a clear communication, conversation, and way of living. So we are going to end really soon. Yeah. But I think what's this is really a good place to end because what happens next is really what's critical to who we are. Um. Is it a matter of becoming good? Is it a matter of being good? Is it a matter of that God is good and God lives within me and therefore I am good? These are questions I think that may still need to be answered, but I'm going to leave What gets me to the place that I'm good? I often don't even struggle with that. I just struggle with what's next. Okay, I'm good fine I guess I had that moment that I was supposed to have and I'm spiritually born again or not or what does that exactly look like but what do I how do I move forward if I believe this you know the Bible says that if you believe in if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and I'm struggling with scripture now I love that Um, believe that Jesus is Lord and and say that he that God raised him from the dead and basically believe in who he is that you will be saved. And I'm like, got it. I did that. I know that. Not mm-hmm. not even just a check marked box. Like that's that's not what that means to me. It's something deeper. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how to move forward. Period. Nobody's taught me how. And I'm I haven't found much basis in the Bible personally beyond you will struggle and you have to become XYZ to really help me move forward. So what's next? That's my question.